A warning, this episode features dramatizations and discussions of graphic death and sexual exploitation. Listener discretion is advised, especially for listeners under 13. Something to note, the story you're about to hear is not a direct retelling of any single myth about the Leviathan. Today's episode combines elements from a number of legends and stories about this biblical sea monster for dramatic effect. I'm Vanessa Richardson, and this is Mythical Monsters, a ParCast original. For thousands of years, humans have been telling stories about the creatures that stalk our imaginations. Every week we examine those stories, where they come from, what they symbolize, and what they can tell us about ourselves. Last week we discussed Cthulhu, an enormous alien sea monster from the mind of author H.P. Lovecraft. The story of how Cthulhu captured the world's attention is a fascinating episode, so if you haven't caught it, don't forget to look it up and give it a listen. Today's episode is on another infamous sea monster known as the Leviathan. Its story is part of a mythological tradition that stretches all the way back to the very first civilizations. To face this gargantuan monster represents nothing less than to battle chaos itself. You can listen to episodes of Mythical Monsters and other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll begin the story of the Leviathan after this. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. The Leviathan is mentioned several times in the Hebrew Bible, appearing in the Book of Job, the Book of Psalms, the Book of Isaiah, and the Book of Amos. These scattered passages offer brief and somewhat contradictory descriptions of an enormous serpent or dragon that lives deep within the ocean. 
In some depictions, it has many heads. In others, it expels fiery breath with the power to boil the seas. Its teeth have the power to crush ships, and its scales are nigh impenetrable. The most detailed description comes from the Book of Job, in which God describes the Leviathan as one of his most fearsome creations. He tells Job, Canst thou draw out Leviathan with a hook? None is so fierce that dare stir him up. Who then is able to stand before me? His teeth are terrible, his scales are his pride. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. His eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning lamps, and sparks of fire leap out. Sorrow is turned into joy before him. When he raiseth up himself, the mighty are afraid. Upon earth there is not his like, who is made without fear. God's message in this passage is simple. If such a mighty and terrible beast can exist, just imagine how powerful its creator must be. This is a similar theme to the story of the behemoth, a giant land mammal we covered in a previous episode of Mythical Monsters. The Bible sets up the Leviathan and behemoth as symbolic counterparts, each representing forces of chaos in the natural world. Just as the behemoth embodies the power of the earth, the leviathan illustrates the destructive power of the sea. And in both cases, the strength and size of the creatures are meant to reveal the even greater power of God. But while the leviathan is commonly thought of as a creature from the Bible, its origins may be much older. Stories about a primordial sea dragon matching the creature's description are so ubiquitous in the religions of the ancient Near East that they have their own name among mythologists. Chaoskampf is the German word for the struggle between a storm god and an immense destructive sea serpent. This narrative depicts an ageless battle between the forces of creation and the forces of chaos, a conflict so elemental to the fabric of the universe that we've been telling its story as long as anyone can remember. Saleh stared over the ship's bow at the vast blue ocean spread out before him. He'd never seen anything like it. Water had always been a precious commodity in the rocky desert outside of Moab, where Saleh had grown up. When he first saw the ocean, he'd wanted to run to it and drink his fill. Ibrahim and Azaru had to hold him back as they explained that this water was not good for drinking. The ocean was a sacred and powerful thing. Four months earlier, Saleh had left his tribe on a trading mission to the city of Ugarit. Five other merchants had set out on the journey with him, but the desert had taken them, one by one. Saleh was alone when he finally reached Ugarit. It was there that he met Azaru and Ibrahim. 
They were a strange pair. A Canaanite and an Israelite traveling together was not something you saw every day. They'd both been trading since before Saleh was born, and they'd agreed to take him under their wing for a small fee. He was glad of it. The imposing city was no place for a terrified boy with a treasure trove of precious salt. As he stared out at the sea, Saleh spotted a glistening silver body springing from the waves. Saleh shrieked and stepped back from the rail of the ship. Ibrahim laughed and clapped him on the shoulder. If you jump like that at every dolphin, you're in for a right scare when you come face to face with the Leviathan. What is the Leviathan? Saleh asked. The merchants looked at one another and grinned. Then they launched into their explanations. Saleh tried his best to follow as the two men talked over one another in their eagerness to describe the sea monster. The Leviathan, they told him, was an enormous serpent that lived beneath the waves and was known for sinking entire fleets. When they'd finally finished, Saleh looked skeptically between the two men. It wasn't the description of the Leviathan that surprised him, so much as the fact that Ibrahim and Azaru seemed to agree on the matter. Usually, one could not get out a sentence without the other man correcting him. And you both believe in this monster? Saleh asked. Ibrahim shrugged. Just because Azaru admits the Leviathan is real doesn't make him an expert. He is as misguided about the history of the creature as he is on most topics. Azaru laughed. What he means is that I know the truth while he believes foolish lies. The two men began bickering like a pair of young children. The argument seemed to be on the verge of becoming physical when Saleh interrupted them. I suppose you'll have to tell me both tales, he insisted. Then I'll decide which of you I believe. The two men shared a look, nodding in another rare moment of agreement. Azaru took a seat on one of the wooden benches that ran across the deck and gestured for Saleh to settle in. The merchant stroked his beard pensively as he looked out over the water. This story is about the god Baal Hadad, he began. He is the rider of the clouds, the son of the dragon, and the lord of the earth. But he hasn't always been so powerful. There was a time when the gods were ruled by El, the creator. When El was ready to choose a successor, he gave the crown to his son Yam, the wicked and tyrannical lord of the sea. Despite his misgivings, Baal accepted El's decision. He accepted Yam as his king, until the sea god did something unforgivable. Baal climbed the mighty stone steps, taking them two at a time, and leaving a crack in the stone with each heavy footfall. In the time since Yam's coronation, every last vestige of dignity had been stripped from Baal and his kin. The gods had been forced into labor, made to carry great blocks of stone up to the mount where the two rivers met. That had been insult enough, but what Yam had done to Asherah was the final straw. 
Baal threw open the sandstone doors of the enormous council chamber. Inside, all the gods except for Yam were seated in a line of golden thrones. Ashira began to stand, but Baal waved a hand for her to be seated. He strode to the smoking fire pit in the center of the room and began to speak. I am sure I was not the only god here who was glad to hear what our mother had done, that Ashira had gone to Yam to make an appeal for our dignity. Now I learn this, Yam demands to bed our mother, who is consort to his own father, and for our sakes she has agreed. Ashira's eyes fell to the floor. El, the creator, sat beside her, his expression inscrutable. Enough is enough, Baal continued. I will not accept this indignity. If I have to drag Yam off the throne myself, so be it. For a moment, no one spoke. Then a sharp voice called from behind. Baal turned. Three young men in golden loincloths stood in the doorway. They wore pointed caps and black wings sprouted from their backs. They were the emissaries of Yam. Baal's nostrils flared as one of the emissaries stepped forward. His lips curled into a sly smile. Do not look so surprised to see me, Baal Haydad, he said. Those who speak ill of the king will always attract his attention. Baal's eyes blazed as he whirled to face the other gods. Who has betrayed me, he demanded to know. Who alerted Yam? I did. The voice had risen from the far end of the chamber. Baal's face fell in astonishment as El stood. I chose Yam as my successor, said the creator in a calm voice. If it is treachery to warn a king of sedition, then I am guilty. Baal stared at the old man, so enraged that he could barely speak. The emissary stepped forward. Lord Yam sends a message, Baal Haydad. He will forgive you if you will bow to him. Baal couldn't bear it any longer. He pulled his dagger and leapt at the smirking boy. Before he could reach the emissary, his sister Anat threw herself between the two. Save your rage for his master, Anat whispered. Baal took a deep breath, eyes never leaving the emissary. Tell Prince Yam that I will never bow to him, he said, struggling to keep his voice calm. If that displeases him, he can find me at the shores of the Great Sea tomorrow at dawn. I will challenge him to open combat, and by the laws of El, I will take his place as king. The emissaries bowed and swept out of the chamber, slamming the sandstone doors shut behind them. Once they'd gone, Baal turned back to the Council of Gods. Who will assist me? he demanded. Who will help me defeat Yam and reclaim our dignity? An uncomfortable silence filled the room. Anat looked like she wanted to say something, but one look from El kept her in her place. Baal's face fell. He knew he would not be strong enough to defeat Yam on his own. Then wide-eyed, bull-headed Cother stepped forward. 
I will help you, he said, pounding his blacksmith's hammer against his chest. I will create two clubs. Their names shall be Yagrush and Aimer. They will not grant you strength or make you invincible, but they will be the only weapons that can hurt Yam once he has taken his fighting form. Baal clapped him on the back. It was good to know that he had at least one loyal friend. He looked around at the other gods and declared, the next time you see me, I will be your king. When we return, Baal faces the terrifying king of the sea. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. The god Baal Hadad stood on the gray beach, an iron club in each hand. The weapons felt as light as feathers, but the blacksmith, Cawther, had told them they would hit with the force of boulders. Even with these heavenly weapons, he felt uneasy. He had never questioned El's wisdom before and had tried to accept the creator's son as his new ruler. But all of his fears had been proven true. Yam was a beast and a tyrant, and Baal could not kneel to him. If that made him a traitor, then so be it. His thoughts were interrupted by the sight of something in the distance. A large shape had appeared on the horizon. Its scales, each as large as a small ship, glistened in the light of dawn. Seven serpentine heads rose from the waves on long, muscular necks. Seven mouths opened to show forked tongues and rows of fangs, each longer than a man's leg. A shiver ran up Baal's spine as he met the creature's glowing red eyes. This was the form Yam took when he was fighting. Its name was Lotan. The Canaanite Phoenicians were an ancient group of people who lived along the Mediterranean shores of modern-day Jordan, Syria, and Israel. They appear in the Bible as enemies of the Israelites, notable for their unparalleled barbarism. They're described as corrupt idol worshippers, and when they're eventually conquered and enslaved by the Israelites, it's hailed as a triumph of good over evil. But this narrative doesn't tell the whole story. While there's some archaeological evidence of Israelites conquering Phoenician towns between 1250 to 1150 BCE, experts now believe that for the most part, the two groups lived peacefully alongside each other for hundreds of years. Countless similarities in their languages and cultures indicate a long period of cooperation and assimilation. They influenced each other's clothing, food, art, literature, and even religious beliefs. 
The Old Testament is littered with parallels to a major Canaanite religious text known as the Baal Cycle. Links between the two works can be found in everything from the structure of the poetry to the names of the characters. Yahweh, the name given to the God of the Old Testament, is also the name of one of the lesser gods of the Baal Cycle. But many scholars suggest that Yahweh's true equivalent in Canaanite theology is the god Baal-Hadad. His association with storms closely parallels the Hebrew god, who's often described through storm metaphors and appears in the guise of thunder, floods, or great winds. But the clearest evidence of Canaanite influence can be seen in the Leviathan. The name Leviathan comes from the Hebrew word for twisted and most likely evolved from the Ugaritic word lotan, which translates to coiled. In the Baal cycle, Lotan was the name of a sea monster of incredible size and power. He was an alter ego of the sea god Yam and one of Baal Hadad's greatest enemies. Their battle serves as one of the most important tales in the Baal cycle, depicting the moment when chaos sought to consume order forever. Baal gazed up at the monstrous serpent in front of him. Its seven heads turned toward him and spoke in unison, thick black smoke pouring from their mouths as they did. Welcome, Baal Hadad. Baal took a deep breath. He waited, hoping the monster would come to him, but Yam was too clever for that. He was going to have to fight the monster on his own turf. Baal waded into the sea. As soon as he was in range, Lotan attacked. Jets of fire rained down on him, one after the other. Baal dodged the flames, but as he came close to the monster's scaly underbelly, one of the blasts caught him directly in the chest. The pain was unbearable, as though the flesh was being torn from Baal's body. As he doubled over, one of Lotan's fanged mouths swooped down toward him. Baal seized his moment. He swung the club in his right hand high overhead and brought it crashing down with all his might. For a moment, Lotan's head just looked dazed, but then Baal brought the second club down on it. The serpent's skull crumbled, drenching Baal in a spray of hot black blood. It was so thick that he couldn't breathe until he wiped his face clear. Just in time to see another of Lotan's heads lunging for him. Quick as lightning, Baal brought the clubs together, smashing the head between them. Another shower of blood splattered over him. But Baal just ducked under the waves and kept going. He began pulling the heads down by their necks, pummeling them with his hammers until only one remained. Baal reached out for Lotan's remaining neck, but the serpent darted away from him. Lotan gave a horrific shriek and ducked beneath the waves. Baal knew there was no hope of catching him. The god of the sea could swim faster than any fish on earth. He turned back toward the shore and trudged out of the water. 
As Baal collapsed onto the sand, he thought of Lotan, still lurking beneath the waves. He knew that this was not over. Perhaps it would never be. But for now, at least, he had won. The throne was his. He had freed his people from the grip of the tyrannical god of the sea and the serpent of chaos. At least until their next fight. Life for many ancient Canaanites was both predictable and chaotic. Every year in some regions, the dry season was followed by torrential flooding. The rivers would swell, and for a while, existence would seem like a hectic battle against the elements. Worship and sacrifice played a key role in ensuring that these events continued as they should, but even for the most devout, life could be short and brutal. The story of Baal is referred to as a cycle because Baal Hadad's work is never done. The god finds himself pushing back against the overwhelming forces of chaos again and again. While he defeats Yam in the form of the sea monster Lotan, his victory is temporary. Baal knows that the god of the sea is destined to return just as he is destined to battle chaos until the end of time. After many years, the Canaanites were fully assimilated into the more powerful Israelite society. Though they no longer appeared as a distinct culture, their stories would live on. The cycle of Baal and Yam became the biblical episode of God and the Leviathan. The names changed, but the story was the same, a fight between the forces of order and chaos. As Azaru neared the end of his story, Ibrahim paced back and forth on the deck behind Saleh. So far, the merchant had limited himself to a few snorts of disgust. By the time Azaru finally reached the end, Ibrahim was bursting at the seams. He shouted, what kind of a god needs a magic club to fight? Azaru raised an eyebrow and said, a brave one. Ibrahim gave a derisive snort and leaned back against the rail of the ship. He paused for a moment, taking a swig from his wineskin, then told Saleh to listen up. He had a real story to tell. The Lord God created the universe in seven days. On the fifth day, he made the Leviathan, a twisting serpent longer than the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. Its eyes glowed like the dawn. Acrid smoke billowed from its nostrils and flames from its leathery black lips. Azaru interrupted with a boisterous laugh. Why would your God create such a thing? He must be a fool. Ibrahim gave his friend a look of disgust. Why did God make death or lions or disease? He asked. It is not our place to question the creator. The point is that he did not just make one Leviathan. As with every creature under the sun, he began with two. The Leviathan twisted in the water, 
eyeing his own magnificent body. His scales glinted in the light from his eyes. They were every shade of blue, gold, purple, and green. Fins jutted out from his back. Each one was sharp enough to slice through iron. His fangs were long and brilliantly white. When he looked at the sea around him, he knew that there was no creature that could rival his magnificence. He was king of all beasts. In a moment of elation, he propelled himself out of the water. As his body arched over the surface of the ocean, he saw land for the first time. A dark gray cloud was passing over fields and hills. Great bolts of light shot out from it, and then suddenly the land was filled with creatures. There were small green creatures that crept about close to the ground, tan-colored beasts that drank from the rivers, and two-legged creatures with hair that grew from their heads. As he came crashing back down into the water, the Leviathan realized something. He was king of the seas, but not king of the beasts. There was a whole other realm beyond the waves, one that he could never reach. A terrible rage bubbled up in the Leviathan's chest, an anger that burned so hot, he felt like it was trying to explode out of him. Before it could, a movement out of the corner of his eye distracted him. He spun around, but the thing he had seen was already swimming away. The Leviathan followed it down toward the depths of the ocean. As he swam deeper, he realized that the creature had glowing eyes just like he did. He called out to it. His voice came out as a gravelly hiss. When the other creature heard it, she turned around. The moment their eyes met, the Leviathan knew that she was his equal, his other half. Her scales were every color in the universe. Her eyes glowed with the golden fire of the most magnificent sunset. For a moment, the two great sea serpents examined each other. They swam tentatively closer to one another until they were almost touching. Their long tails formed a careful spiral. The two beasts intertwined. For a while, the Leviathan was happy with his mate, his queen of the seas. Side by side, they swam through the ocean, consuming every living thing they crossed. For the most part, they stayed away from the surface, but every so often the Leviathan couldn't help but think of the land creatures. It stung him to know that there was a place where he could never go. Occasionally, he would stumble across the earth animals moving over the water in their tiny wooden boxes. Whenever that happened, a feeling of sudden rage came over him. It would build and build until it came boiling out of him in a jet of fire. At first, these incidents were rare, but more and more the Leviathan found himself seeking out the vessels. He relished the sight of the flames and the shrieks of the land creatures as they hurled themselves into the churning waters. 
For a while, the Leviathan was mostly content, but then came the day when his whole world fell apart. The Leviathan awoke to the sound of high-pitched hissing. He looked around and saw that his queen was not laying beside him. He started to panic, but then he saw her. She was couched under a nearby cliff, swimming in frantic circles over the same spot. As he came closer, she relaxed. She stopped hissing and moved aside so he could see what she was protecting. Hundreds of tiny eggs sat on the floor of the ocean, nestled on a bed of kelp. As he stared at them, the Leviathan felt his whole body swell with pride. He was going to be a father. Coming up, Ibrahim's story takes a dark turn. Now back to the story. Saleh pulled his threadbare wool cloak more tightly around his shoulders. A chill had fallen over the boat as the sun began to set. Night was coming on, and they were headed out into the open ocean. He wasn't so sure that he wanted to hear more stories about sea monsters. Azaru's tale about a war of succession between the gods had been intriguing, but he'd not been able to dispel the image of the seven-headed Lotan from his mind. And now that Ibrahim had launched into his own tale about the Leviathan, he doubted there was anything he could do to stop him. He sat back against the wooden rail of the ship as the merchant's tale continued. The Leviathan coiled around his mate as they stared down at their eggs. Soon they would hatch, and an army of his children would fill the sea. As he looked at the eggs, the Leviathan's thoughts returned to the land. His brood would eventually rule the ocean, but the earth would forever lie beyond their reach. Or would it? The Leviathan's tail flicked through the water as he considered the problem. What had convinced him that he had to stay in the ocean? He could raise his head above the water. He could move his body across the sand on the floor of the sea. For a moment, he remembered the storm cloud he'd seen on the day he'd been created. It had seemed so powerful. Somehow he felt that the cloud wanted him to stay where he was. But how could a cloud stop him? Now that he had children, he should be the king of all things. He should crawl onto the land and wipe the creatures from the earth once and for all. The Leviathan nudged his queen and pointed upwards with his nose. She ducked her head back towards the eggs. He ignored her and began swimming away. She called out after him, but he would not be deterred. Today, he would claim the earth for his children. The Leviathan broke through the surface of the water and made his way towards the shore. Out of the corner of his eye, he noticed black clouds gathering on the horizon, but he ignored them and swam on. 
As he approached the beach, a voice crackled through the Leviathan's mind. Stay where you are, it seemed to say. You are a serpent of the sea, and I have granted you dominion over that realm. Be content. As the words rang through the Leviathan's mind, he felt as if he was being drawn back into the ocean. He had never experienced anything like the voice before, but somehow he knew it was the storm cloud. Again, he ignored it and swam on. When the Leviathan finally reached the shore, he whipped his tail behind him and launched himself up onto the sand. It was easier than he had imagined. He propelled himself towards the trees at the edge of the beach. Then the Leviathan heard a deafening boom. The thunder seemed to shake his very bones. It was followed by a wind so strong it nearly pinned him to the ground. There was another crash of thunder and jagged bolts of lightning struck around him, one after the other. For a moment, he wondered if maybe he had been wrong. Then he heard a cry. The Leviathan turned around to see his queen. She had followed him here and was swimming anxiously from side to side. The voice in his head grew louder and angrier. He looked up to the cloud that had gathered above him, but the Leviathan had already made up his mind. If the cloud wanted to strike him down, so be it. He continued forward. Suddenly, the sky was ripped apart as a blinding light flashed overhead. A bolt of lightning arched out, shooting past the Leviathan. He heard an unearthly shriek and spun around to see his beloved sinking beneath the waves. Black blood seeped from the wound in her scales into the sea around her, which still sizzled and bubbled with heat from the lightning. The Leviathan gave a rumbling cry of agony. He flew back through the sand and into the water. He dove until he reached his queen, wrapping his tail around her bleeding body. Her eyes were dull and dark. Their light had been put out forever. For a moment, the Leviathan lay coiled around her lifeless body, but then it began to pull away from him. The body was rising up out of the water. The Leviathan screamed in desperation, but there was nothing he could do. The black cloud was taking everything from him. Then the Leviathan remembered the eggs. He swam as fast as he could towards his den, but it was too late. As he came in sight of the cliff, he saw the shattered remains of his children. The bodies of tiny snakes lay lifeless in a mess of eggshells. The Leviathan's world had been destroyed. His anger welled inside his chest until he could contain it no longer. He opened his mouth, flames burst forth, and the sea boiled with his grief and rage.
The story of the male and female Leviathans comes from a later Hebrew text known as the Talmud. It explains how once the Leviathans mated, God knew it was only a matter of time before they destroyed the world. To ensure that they never had children, he castrated the male and killed the female, preserving her body in salt. According to scripture, the male Leviathan will one day be killed, and the righteous will gather to feast on his flesh and the flesh of his mate. The significance of the Leviathan is further explored in the book of Job, which tells the story of a man who's completely faithful to God, yet gets nothing but heartache and misery in return. The story raises a simple but confounding question. Why would God allow bad things to happen to his followers? Furthermore, why did he create the Leviathan in the first place? And why does he continue to allow the male Leviathan to exist? Eventually, Job is so beaten down by misfortune that he appeals to the Leviathan to rescue him. God appears to Job in the form of a raging whirlwind and reminds him that he was the one who created the Leviathan in the first place. God may have battled chaos by striking down the female Leviathan, but he's still just as present in that chaos as he is in any other part of creation. Misery and destruction have a part to play in his divine will. Ultimately, Yahweh leaves the monster alive because he has nothing to fear from it. The point is that God should not be afraid of chaos. We should be afraid of God. When Ibrahim finished his story, he sat back and folded his arms. Azaru threw his hands up in disgust. What kind of story was that? Your version of God is a cloud that kills a sea monster's wife? Ibrahim's face flushed red, and he launched into one of his rants. As the two old men argued with each other, Saleh slipped away. He thought that the two stories had more in common than the men realized. In Azaru's version, God was fallible and small. He only defeated the monster because of his magic clubs, and one day it would return to fight again. In Ibrahim's tale, God was all-powerful, but he still allowed the monster to exist. Saleh had found the stories exciting, but truthfully there was something a little disheartening in them both. Why did it matter if God was powerful and mean or weak and good? Either way, life was unfair. The moonless night grew blacker and the boat drifted deeper into the still waters of the endless ocean. Saleh couldn't stop picturing the Leviathan with its massive scales and glowing orange eyes. He leaned over the rail of the ship and wondered how he would ever get to sleep with those terrifying visions in his head. As he gazed out over the water, Saleh glimpsed a shape in the distance. At first, he thought it was just his mind playing tricks on him. He shut his eyes and wished the dark shape away. But when he looked again, it was still there, and it was drawing nearer. Saleh called out to Ibrahim and Aziru, but the men were too caught up in their argument to listen. When he turned back to the water again, he couldn't make out the shape anymore. It had been swallowed by the black night and the waves. 
Then the Leviathan opened its eyes. The light that emanated from them was the fiery red of the dawn before a storm. It illuminated the whole boat in its hellish glow. The last thing Saleh thought before the creature's jaws closed over the ship was that he guessed they had both been right. The narrative of Kaoskampf has been told again and again throughout history. For thousands of years, different cultures have been borrowing this story and rebuilding it to suit their own needs. The Canaanites molded it into the story of the battle between Baal and Lotan. That tale influenced the Israelites, eventually finding its way into their holy text in the story of the Leviathan. Though the names change, the tale is largely the same. The storm god versus the sea serpent, order versus chaos. People told these stories to make sense of the brutality of their world, to understand how creation and joy can coincide with misery and meaningless destruction. The answers they got weren't particularly comforting. Either God could not defeat chaos, or that God had created the chaos. In either case, the ancient storytellers knew, no matter how defeated it seemed today, it was only a matter of time before that chaos returned. It was like the Leviathan, an undying, powerful force of nature hidden just below the waves. Thanks for listening to Mythical Monsters. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on the Leviathan and the Baal Saga, amongst the many sources we used, we found Religion and Its Monsters by Timothy Beale, as well as The Ugaritic Baal Cycle, a comparison of literature in the ancient Near East by Talmadge Lee Gerald III, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Mythical Monsters, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Mythical Monsters on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythical Monsters in the search bar. Join me next week as we discuss another fearsome creature born from humanity's limitless imagination. Mythical Monsters was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Mythical Monsters was written by Zoe Luisa Lewis, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 